0: Long comes Einstein and quantum theory, and we know precisely some of the key limits of Newton's theory. So we we understand that, and, and and yet Newton's on to something, and and yet we also know that whatever it's on to is pales compared to the truth, and that so that for me is a very interesting tension in in, in science that that we are definitely rewarded by having very mathematically precise statements, even though there's never going to be a final theory of everything. So that's, that's a place of unknown for me. That, that fact is really uh, interesting to me to be explored. Yes,
1: that, that's very interesting, and I think there's a parallel in spiritual traditions in that many traditions, as you know, recognize that the the truth cannot be uh, apprehended or, or adequately formulated by the mind,
2: and therefore they conclude one shouldn't use one's mind. Welcome to the Sounds of Sand podcast. Today we're delighted to have two beloved speakers from our Sand Conferences of the Past, cognitive scientist and consciousness researcher Donald Hoffman, and direct path spiritual teacher Rupert Spira. And both of these luminaries espouse the philosophy that consciousness is the fundamental field of reality. And they say that our materialist paradigm of space-time is, uh, to quote Donald Hoffman, doomed. They say this so-called hard problem of consciousness, namely, how does subjective experience emerge from the physical world, is a backwards model and what we actually have is the hard problem of matter in that all that we know and perceive and experience is just one modulating field of a shared consciousness that's knowing itself through our individual experiences and Don and Rupert both explain this from different backgrounds of science and spirituality and come together and weave their knowledge in a really beautiful way in this conversation. And we go to some very exciting, and I think new places for each of them and audiences of science and non-duality conferences and also new explorers of mind and consciousness and reality. I think will really enjoy this episode. It was my deep honor to be present and witness the unfolding of a shared exploration in this discussion. And now I bring you Donald Hoffman and Rupert Spira. Welcome to science and non-duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the
0: collective conscious being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That
1: matter is energy, energy is matter. That's what EMC
2: squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we... There is a collapse, but if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. All right. I'm here with Donald Hoffman and Rupert Spira on the Sounds of Sand podcast. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here today.
1: Very nice to to be with you, Michael and and Don.
2: Very very nice. Thank you very much. Yeah, so I I think for science and non-duality audiences, they'll both know you both very well from your numerous appearances at the SAND conferences and some online offerings that you've given uh, at the SAND website. So on behalf of SAND, welcome back and it's it's so great to be with you here together. And have you two ever presented together at a SAND conference or been on a panel or anything like that?
1: Not at a SAND conference, no. Yeah.
0: no. Mm-hmm. We, we had a, a lovely breakfast together once. But, we, we've uh, had breakfast together, yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Cool. Yeah. And, and you did a podcast recently with Simon Mundy, which I've listened to several times, and that was a really great yes. introduction of the convergences of your, uh, uh, your philosophies and practice. So I'll we'll have a link to that in the show notes for people to go further in this conversation. And I wanted to open today with, an, uh, with a quote uh, to kind of set the intention for the conversation. And the quote is from the book uh, Gerdel Escher Bach uh, from Douglas Hofstadter. And the quote is, for now, what is important is not finding the answer, but looking for it. And uh, are, are you both, you're familiar with this book?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. I, I, I know of it, but I haven't read it. Okay. Well, it, it reminds me so much of your uh, relationship to each other because it's, it's a book uh, about the music of J.S. Bach, the art of M.C. Escher, And the mathematics of girdle and how these um, seemingly different strands intertwine to talk about a lot of things in computer science and philosophy and consciousness so it really reminds me of the dialogues that i've heard from from both of you so i just thought it was a, a a nice way a nice way to set the intention for and this idea of not necessarily wanting to find the answer but enjoying the journey of looking for it, and so in that spirit of incompleteness, so Godel's incompleteness theorem, I w- wanted to first question I wanted to ask is uh, in your work and in your concepts they're very well known to many of our um, listeners, I'm sure, in the in the numerous podcasts and videos and writings and books that you've created. But for each of you, what's uh, at the edge for you right now? What's outside of your current research and inquiry? And what are you curious about in this consciousness first model of reality? So what's in that unknown space for you in this moment? Rupert, why
0: don't you go first?
1: <laughs> I think that one of the things that really interests me at the moment is how this understand, I've come to this understanding, um, through the uh, religious and spiritual traditions, unlike you, I think, Don, who came to it through a, a different pathway. And um, in my work, I, I've done my best to... to Well, uh, others before me d- divested this um, understanding of all its religious packaging. I'm doing my best to divest it of all its spiritual packaging. And I would what really interests me is how this understanding can be made available, not just to a few select people who are deeply interested in the nature of reality or in spiritual matters or the search for enlightenment, but, but how we can take this understanding beyond the, the rather limited precious bubble of, of spiritual inquiry and, and, um, Really, not not even to consider it something spiritual or extraordinary, just how it can be shared more more widely. That's the well, one of the things that I'm particularly interested in at the moment is how to make this understanding more widely available mm-hmm. uh, without any need for subscribing not only to any religious tradition, but to any, any spiritual
0: assumptions, traditions, teachers, and so on. That's wonderful. I'm I wholeheartedly behind that kind of idea. That's uh, I think that um, it, it should be something that's just the way we live. Exactly. Not, not yeah. it, it should be just part of good, healthy living to, to understand that we are not, we're not our thoughts <laughs> uh, and not... Necessarily to believe our thoughts. Although, of course, as a scientist, I use that thought a lot. But but even there, my attitude is that scientific theories are just theories. They're not the truth. And and no scientific theory is the truth or ever will be the truth. Um, it, they'll always be, at best, approximations. And in many cases, not even that. Um, so, so understanding, I mean, I think it's as a scientist, it's very practical as well to, in actual research, to know about letting go of your thoughts, to Mm -hmm. tap into the deeper creativity that can then be transported into thought um, and projected in the law there. So, yeah, so so I I would agree with that. My, My own, I'm very interested in the limits of knowledge as a scientist and as a human being because I pursue knowledge and science and, and so forth. And yet it's very, very clear that from Girdle's incompleteness and so forth, that um, uh, anything that we say is at best a projection of the truth and not the truth. It's it's a description, but not the thing. And so that's, that's pretty profound. And it, it, it really bears on... Doing science and what we what we are doing in science, when we have theories with their own assumptions that are fallible and unexplained, the assumptions are what we don't prove; they're what we assume. They're the miracles that we, we So we always have miracles, and there's no way to have a scientific theory without miracles, and and therefore without limitations to the theory itself. Um, so I think in that sense, again, it, we don't need. To, to use spiritual language to talk about this, we, you know, we, we can, it's just a matter of fact about the human condition and, and, and good to talk about it that way. Yeah. yeah. And, and and this links back to the to the very nice quote that you
1: started with, uh, Michael, which suggests that the mind is the right instrument for, for asking the questions. The, right, the mind is the right instrument for exploring these questions, but it, it's not the right instrument for finding the answers mm-hmm. because the mind imposes its own limitations on anything that it knows. And therefore, anything that is known by the mind shares the limitations of the mind. So, so the mind, by definition, is is not the right <laughs> instrument for, for understanding uh, that which lies beyond the mind, that which lies beyond space and time, the, the infinite. Although it's the right instrument for exploring, for asking and exploring those questions. But it has to be very f- humble, in the face of that inquiry uh, and recognize that it can provisionally formulate the, 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 the results of this exploration, but they're only, as, as you just said, Don, they're only at best provisional um, formulations of, of the truth that, that approximate the truth in the mind's own limited language but can never really
0: capture it yeah i I agree, and i I think that it's many scientists um think that there will be a theory of everything. and they talk about a theory of everything. and I, I think most probably say that with a wink and a nod, but but I think some take it seriously that we'll get the final theory of everything. And my own attitude is that if you understand scientific theories as as you were saying, Rupert, they can never be the final answer. they it, it, yes. They can be very rigorous and we, we do find that there's some remarkable payoff for being mathematically precise. Right? Newton's laws allow us to send spaceships to the moon. And if we didn't if we changed anything in his laws, we wouldn't get there. If if we changed the gravitational law even a little bit, we, we would crash. So there's there so even though they're not the truth. There, there, we find that there's some reward for being precise. Even though, you know, long comes Einstein and quantum theory, and we know precisely some of the key limits of Newton's theory. So we, we understand that. And, and, and yet, Newton's onto something, and, and yet we also know that whatever it's onto is, pales compared to the truth. And that, so, that for me is a very interesting tension in, in, in science that, that we are definitely rewarded by having very mathematically precise statements, even though there's never going to be a final theory of everything. So, that's, that's a place of unknown for me. That, that, that fact is really uh, interesting to me to be explored. Yes. Yeah. That, that's
1: very interesting, And I think there's a parallel in spiritual traditions, in that many traditions, as you know, recognize. Uh, that the, the truth cannot be uh, apprehended or, or adequately formulated by the mind and therefore they conclude one shouldn't use one's mind any question that, that is raised is just don't, don't think about it go 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 back to to contemplating or, or and i think i think this is a, a it's a mistake j- j- just as you um, feel on that 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 um, there's a payoff for being accurate, even though it, it's not an absolute accuracy. It, it's a relative accuracy. Likewise, I think in the in the spiritual traditions that, that, that there is a value to to using the mind, to recognizing its limits, but to to, to using the mind to explore and and analyze and investigate um, the, the nature of reality, both inside oneself and and outside of oneself, and recognize at the same time that the mind can can never actually arrive at the answer. But just because the mind can never arrive at the answer doesn't invalidate the, the process of the mind's
0: investigation. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and somehow it seems like you know the, the deeper intelligence that's beyond the mind has chosen to plunge itself now and then into mind and explore that way and even to get lost in mind and then to wake up. And maybe that's a deep part of the self-understanding that, that transcends the mind, which which is quite interesting. And, and maybe, as you were saying, it's it's more about negation. So all the things that we can say, whatever I am transcends that. As beautiful as all that scientific theory or all the nature that we see and so forth is complicated as all the galaxies and and plant life and so forth and as beautiful as it is and as as much as there is to say about it books and books and books libraries and libraries full of i transcend that the 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 reality transcends that and that that is a kind of a deeper knowing even though it's a negation
1: yes it, it transcends it but is at the same time imminent within it Yes. So what one can either take the path of transcendence and, and turn away from everything objective, or one can take the path of immanence and go deeply into it and through it and, and yes. come to the same reality that on the way of transcendence we come to by way of negation. So I think bo- both those routes, in, in my tradition it's the Vedantic and Tantric approaches, the turning away from experience and the turning towards the experience. If you go either way and you go far enough, you you come to the same conclusion. Yes, and you meet yourself. You you, you meet yourself in 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 the truest sense of the word. Absolutely, it, it, it's like it's like um, starting out traversing a circle in two opposite directions. You you seem to be going in two opposite directions, but if you keep going, you you meet.
0: Yes, and and I think for scientists, I mean, the the non-spiritual, non-religious way of talking about it, you know, is that scientific knowledge has to be known by something. Something has to have the understanding. What is it that understands the equations? What is it that understands the observations and that puts them together? Yes. Now, most of my colleagues, of course, studying consciousness, um, are physicalists and they will answer and say, well, well, we know what that is. It's neural activity and neural activity is the understander, um, or causes the understandings. And, and I think that that, well, I have many brilliant colleagues who are and friends who are working in that direction and. I think ultimately they'll, they'll see that, that, that doesn't work right now. There's not been a single specific conscious experience that they can explain in terms of neural activity or physical systems more generally, no no specific. So uh, there's always a promissory note that we'll get there, but, but that promissory note's been out for quite a while now. And, uh, there's, so I think at, at some point this negation path that we were talking about is going to, it, it will again be a non-spiritual, non-religious kind of thing. They'll just realize, wow, we tried. We tried that, the neuroscience, booting up consciousness really hard, and it doesn't work.
1: Yes, yes. Yes, because to understand anything, surely one must first understand the nature of that which understands. Right. Because everything we understand appears in accordance with the nature of the medium through which it is understood. So if we don't understand that which understands, our knowledge, our understanding can only ever be as good as our knowledge or our belief about the nature of that which understands. So th- this investigation into the into the nature of that which understands, which which is the nature of consciousness, mm-hmm. must ultimately be the ultimate science, because all other knowledge depends on our knowledge of consciousness, that which understands. So I I, I would agree with you, Don. Sooner or later, I, I would have thought any scientist must come to the conclusion that in order to know what anything is, what what reality is, we must first know the nature of that which knows. Yes. And and, and that's really the ancient art of self-inquiry, the investigation into the nature of the self or the nature of the mind. It must surely be the
0: ultimate science in the end. Now, I think where a lot of my my colleagues would go on that is to say – look at the remarkable strides that we've had in AI recently, chat GPT and so forth. And the you, you ask a question and you're starting to get human level um, responses that suggest all sorts of intelligence and understanding. And and in fact, it's so good that many people are using it instead of doing the work themselves. And, and it, it in many cases passes muster and, and people accept it. So... So, there, I mean, people raise a legitimate question, what, what more do we mean by understanding than that, right? And, but I think that there is something more. Those are um, wonderfully complicated algorithms that we don't really understand yet how they, how they do what they do. Um, but that's the, – the question you're raising, Rupert, I think is a much deeper one, which is what is understanding qua understanding? not, not some algorithm that, that impresses us.
1: Yes. But because if you, if you take the experience of understanding, let, let's say, um, take take the example of, of, of a joke. Someone, someone's telling you a, a, a joke and if they're a good storyteller, they, they, they eke out the story and, and it, they they take you on a journey. You don't understand the joke while the story is being told, but then the punchline comes in and that final thought, the punchline has to come, and and that is a process of thinking. The the storytelling, it's, it's a process of thought. Your mind is being taken on a journey, but it's only when that, when the punchline has finished that the, the experience of understanding takes place.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Then we laugh. That that again is 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 um, a response of the body. But between the the story, which is a series of thoughts, and the laughter of the body, something takes place. But that that when we call that understanding, it takes place after the mind, the activity of the mind, has come to an end, and before the body responds. So understanding. Oh, always takes place when the mind comes to an end it doesn't take place it's not a it's preceded by a process in the mind but the actual experience that we refer to as understanding
2: doesn't take place in the mind what what is that and that moment too rupert is uh, of uh Groking, you know that we're groking the punchline of understanding the punchline. But when you're in a collective, like if you're in a comedy club, and that happens as a group, it's such a euphoric moment because there's often this this silence, this pause, where everyone's like, "Is that the joke? Do I get it? Am I am I getting it? Like everyone else is getting it, and then this you know unanimous laughter and this joy comes across the audience.
1: Yes, and
2: I would suggest that.
1: The joy that is expressed is because of what is tasted in the experience of understanding. Mm-hmm. That what takes place when the mind comes to an end, when the mind subsides at the, the end of the joke or, or the end of the poem or the end of the piece of music, the mind subsides. Something takes place and, and it's actually timeless. It's outside the mind, but and we call it understanding. But, but the response to that... As you say, it's joy. It, it, it reminds me of the thing William, William Blake said: "Every every bird that cuts the airy way is an immense world of delight, enclosed by the five senses." He, he what is this thing that's that's limited or enclosed by the senses that is not in the in the senses? It, it, what he calls an immense world of delight, what what you referred to as joy earlier. There's something that takes place. In the experience of understanding, understanding is always joyful. Mm-hmm. What, what is that? It, it, it's the experience that, 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 that a scientist craves. It's the one experience that a scientist motivates all scientists: understanding.
0: Einstein is famous for saying something like that uh, um, intuition is a sacred gift and r- rationality or, or reason is the faithful servant it, and it, yes that's that's yeah. along the, the same lines in some sense yes. The, the, yes. really good scientists are doing that very kind of understanding and then translating it into exactly and and like
1: like you like you say or like Einstein said it's it's a sacred gift it comes from comes from somewhere beyond the mind or prior to the mind, uh, uh, of which the mind is in service. That's, yes, that's, that's that's beautiful.
0: Yeah, a lot has been attributed to Einstein, but I think that one might, might actually be something that he said. Um, <laughs> there, there is, and I agree that there is great joy in that kind of understanding and, and great fun in the exploration in that, that way, and that many scientists understand that firsthand because the, the, the good science, the good understanding comes from there and it gets translated ultimately into the math uh, in, in, in most cases, yes. most cases there, there is on the other hand, a, a painful side to it as, as well. Right? So for those who meditate and, and you're going into silence, the, 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 the ego um, is not happy with that. And there's all sorts of attachments to the notions of me and mine and and my mind and my thoughts. that And I'd, so I'd love to get your thoughts on that, Rupert, because there, the, the story is that most people find that you go through periods of, of, of great pain uh, letting go of the thinking mind. And and it doesn't go gentle into that dark night. It, it rages, rages against the, its death. <clears throat> yes, it
1: It's an interesting thing. That 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 death that the the ego seeks it above all else and fears it above all else. In in fact, it's that that that, that death, that disillusion of itself, is I would suggest really the only thing the ego ever truly seeks. But at the same Mm. time, as it as it comes close, it realizes that in order to have what it wants it must die it's the the analogy I sometimes use is like the moth and the flame as long as the the moth is at a distance from the flame the moth thinks oh that's all I want and it journeys only towards (laughs) the flame until it's three inches from the flame and then it realizes oh if I'm going to have the flame I, I must die because the only way of touching the flame is by by becoming the flame and the, the ego is 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 like that it it fears its own demise as you say don in meditation it fears letting go of thoughts because the ego can only stand by identifying itself with something or someone and thought is the the vehicle by which it it does that so as long as it's holding on to someone or something the ego survives and yet while the ego is present in us all, all it's ever seeking is to bring itself to an end, for instance, it's search for happiness in objects to to take the classic
0: Mm
1: -hmm. one of the main, if not the main motivating force of the ego to find satisfaction or fulfillment in objects. What, what is it really trying to do? It's not really seeking the object or the person or the substance. It's, it's seeking to unite with, with the other and, and in uniting to lose itself, it's seeking to lose itself in the object or the other or the substance. In other words, it's it's seeking its own demise, like the moth seeking the flame. And that's all the ego ever really seeks, except that that it wants to it wants to to have its cake and eat it at the same time. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think you're right, Don. The ego does fear this it, its own dissolution, its own death, and at the same time. It's all it ever truly seeks, so it has this ambivalent relationship with 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 with, with truth or, or or love or happiness, or whatever word one uses. It it wants it and fears it in equal measure.
0: In equal measure, I I, I agree. It 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 really does. In my own personal experience with meditation. Um, shows me what you said is, is, is right that I want it and something inside me fears it tremendously as well yeah. and does not go easy and um, will keep me up all night um, be out of its own fear and, and so forth so so that the meditation process would I mean has times of, of great joy and then times of, of, of great pain as as you know there's the pushback. Um, from from the ego, and I'm, yeah. my reading of other writings of other people suggests that that's the rule, not the exception.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yes. We're all engaged in this in this dance that the moth enacts, two or three inches from the flame, back back and forth, coming close, contracting
0: yeah. away, coming close. With- have you resolved that yourself or are you still doing the dance uh,
1: my my understanding of of meditation has changed mm-hmm. and this changed has really resolved this this um issue for me but okay up until until maybe relatively recently I, I conceived as of meditation as as something that we as an, an ego or an apparently separate self undertake with a purpose of however we define our purpose fulfillment happiness enlightenment realization so on and 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 that these uh, that the vast majority of meditation practices can be can be divided into two categories one in which we direct our attention towards an object, a, a mantra, a flame, the breath, the pause between breaths, and, and, and so on. And, and, the, and, and most meditation practices uh, fall into that category. And then, and then there's the, uh, that, that could be called the, the progressive path, we progress to our true nature via an object. Then there's the, the direct path where we don't direct the attention towards an object, but we turn the attention round and it goes back towards the subject, the fact of, being or being aware. So, but both these two forms of meditation are founded on the presumption of separation. I am a separate self. I am an ego, and I'm approaching either indirectly or directly my true mm-hmm. nature. But then there's, there's a there's a third. It shouldn't really be called meditation. It's a kind of non meditation. It's a pathless path. There's a there's a there's a third approach, in in which we take our, we start with the one reality we start with the one being and we stay there we don't approach it and that, that 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 one being is is the being that shines in each of our minds as as the knowledge i am and the knowledge i am it pervades all experience so even if even if we feel i am depressed Mm-hmm. Normally, in, in most cases, of the depression is a is a, a dark, heavy feeling. And, and, and that, that dark, heavy feeling completely obscures the feeling of being, the knowledge I am. And therefore, as a depressed person, we then undertake some kind of practice. Whereas the, the being that we are sent, what we are approaching, what we are trying to approach, it is the being that shines as, as as the I am. And even when we say I am depressed, the I am is shining there. When we say I am lonely, the I the lonely, the I am is shining there, albeit obscured by the loneliness. So so meditation then in 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 my understanding, meditation for me now is just just to be that to, to be that being knowingly. So it no longer and it doesn't matter what is taking place in the mind. In other words, there's no struggle with the mind. I'm not trying to get from here to here because that wherever I am in experience, I can be deeply depressed. I can be ecstatically happy. I can be everything in between. But whatever I am, whatever I am feeling, I am present there. I, not, not me, the person. I, pure being or aware being, am present there. It's the screen that's present Not just behind the movie, but in the movie. So, this in this sense, there's no one. There's nothing to be achieved in meditation. There's no question of sitting down for half an hour in order to accomplish uh, quietening the mind. Or or what is to be accomplished Mm -hmm. is present at the beginning and all the way through and at the end. And so, there's no agenda with the mind, with the content of experience. There's no question of either succeeding or failing, and therefore no struggle. There would only be a struggle if, if we were trying to get from where we are somewhere else. But if, if where we are, what, whatever the experience is, if that experience is pervaded by being, pervaded by the I am, then there's no, more, there's no struggle anymore there's no so th- does that does that answer your question don or does that
0: respond well, i find that very very helpful and I, I i love that 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 way of of putting it and it, i agree that in some sense we are just the the one the one consciousness peering through an avatar a hoffman or a rupert avatar or a michael avatar yeah and 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 and, and there's nowhere to go except where you already are. It's just to, to in some sense, just to wake up to what you already are. Um, I guess the, the, I guess a couple of questions that come up for me that, that I'd love to have your view would be, um, why does the one let itself go unconscious that way and have to wake up? To what it already what what it always was, right? What is that about? Uh, well, first of all,
1: I would say that there isn't a why. That there isn't an answer to the why. It doesn't do so for a reason. Okay. I would just suggest that it is its nature to do so. Now, what, what is its when I say it's nature to do so? To to do what? It, it's the nature of the One to manifest. It's not just a silent, blank, empty, motionless ocean of consciousness. It, it, its nature is to manifest. But the One, the One cannot know its manifestation directly, because the infinite cannot know the finite. The infinite can only know the infinite. Uh, um, imagine if, if. Um, this glass were to be known directly by infinite consciousness. It would have to be... I mean, we're all perceiving this glass from a single location in space. That's why it appears to us as one object. But imagine if if we were to view this glass from, let's mm. say, a dozen different locations and then superimpose those images one on top of another. It would begin to look like a cubist painting. But But then imagine how the infinite would perceive this. It would have to perceive this from every possible location in space, including all the locations inside the object. It would just be a Mm
0: -hmm.
1: deep, dark, black. It it, it couldn't perceive this. In order to perceive form, the the one has to locate itself. It has to Mm -hmm. overlook its knowledge of itself as infinite consciousness. It has to seem to become a finite mind from whose perspective it can know itself in form. So I feel that it is a, manifestation is a kind of, it's a kind of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. It's the, the one, the infinite has to consent to become or seem to become a finite mind in order that it bring manifestation out of potential, into actuality. But it but it, it's a sacrifice. It, it, it pays for that sacrifice with the loss of its knowledge of itself. It seems to become a finite mind. And inherent in this finite mind is the, the belief of, of, of separation and um, uh, mortality. So in a way... Um, uh, the, the suffering is, is is um sorrow it is the inevitable consequence of manifestation. Uh, but I don't think so I don't think one can say that there is a reason for the infinite manifesting. I, I think that it is just its nature to do so, but in doing so it has to sacrifice its knowledge of itself as infinite, and, and, and the sense of completeness, wholeness, fulfillment, absence of death that comes with that. And it has to seem to locate itself as a finite mind with all the attendant sorrow and fear that comes with that.
0: That's a very illuminating answer. Uh, I, I like that. I, 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 One question that I have, maybe other people would have as well, is, is if the one can wake up while it's still in that perspective. Why did it need to ever not be awake from that perspective? Why didn't it it, it retain its knowledge
1: of itself at the same time as as Logan?
0: Yeah, if it is indeed possible for us at some point to really wake up, why 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 did we ever have to sleep? (laughs) Okay, well... um, I've got a why question, I guess. <laughs>
1: no, it, no, it's a it's a very very good question, and um, I have to resort I have to resort to William Blake again to answer this to answer this question. He said this beautiful thing: um, "Eternity is in love with the productions of time." Uh, that. Um, that 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 consciousness it, eternity consciousness is uh, it, the phrase in love with I, I translate that as so utterly intimately one with mm. eternity is, is it, consciousness cannot stand back from its manifestation and view it from a distance it has to completely lose mm. itself in it that's what Blake means by being eternity, being in love with the productions of time, so utterly, intimately one with the productions of time, with form, that it doesn't retain, doesn't hold anything of itself back. It gives itself completely to its manifestation. And suffering is is
2: the uh, the, the price it pays. I see. I wonder, too, if it's, if it's that we're approaching these questions from uh, well, the prison of space-time. So... You know, all of these things we're talking about are taking place over time. So, if the one, you know, the one completely understands itself and knows itself in the totality of time, but we're looking at it through this specific lens of sequential events. So, things like suffering and incompleteness and um, birth and death are just uh, manifestations in what we perceive of as space time. Uh, you know, and I know in both of your work and Don, in the models you're creating, you're seeking to sort of break out of that prison, as it were, and, and see it a deeper reality that's perhaps uh, independent of time.
0: Yes, that, that, that's right. In, in, in the <clears throat> mathematical models that we're building, we're, we do have um, mathematics. Of course, we can never get a mathematics of the one. Mm-hmm. But it transcends mathematics. But we have um, mathematics of the projections of the one, what we call conscious agents in our theory. And, and those, it, it turns out when you take any set of conscious agents, even if they're not interacting, they also satisfy the definition of a conscious agent. That group satisfies the definition. And so it is a conscious agent. And so any group of conscious agents is itself a conscious agent. And, and therefore it it's follows that there's ultimately just the one conscious agent as, as re- so we can never, we, we can, get a theorem that there is one and we can point to it, but we can never describe it because we'd have to climb up something called Cantor's hierarchy of infinities. And and you, you can't do that. You just you, the, the math can't do it. So we can we can see that it's there, we can point to it, and we can look at all the conscious agents in our that we can study scientifically as projections of that deeper one. And what's interesting is that in this dynamical model, it's a, a Markovian dynamics that we have, it's possible to have no arrow of time in, in the sense that the, the dynamics has no increase in entropy. So it's possible to write down a dynamics in which the entropy is constant. And so there's no entropic arrow of time. But it, it turns out it's a theorem that any projection, so any, you take this bigger dynamics, of, say of the one, in any projection that you take where you're losing information, that projected dynamics will necessarily have an increasing entropy and therefore a an narrow of time as an artifact of the loss of information. Mm-hmm. And so that that's that so here's where being mathematically precise does give you know helpful insights right into, into to these these issues, where where you can actually show it's a mathematical necessity in certain cases, uh, under certain assumptions that that, that would be what, what's going on. Um, And then one corollary of that, you know, in terms of how we think about nature and evolution by natural selection and and nature red in tooth and claw and the struggle for survival um, for limited resources. Well, well, time is the key limited resource. (laughs) And so so this, this mathematical theorem suggests that that all of evolution by natural selection is really and and the struggle for limited resources including the limited resource of time all of that is 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 not a deep insight into the nature of reality it's all of it is an artifact of the projection there is there is no struggle for survival there are no limited resources in the one but but you get that appearance from yes. the projection. yes I, I, yes <clears throat> and that that reminds
1: me of just going back to the previous um conversation done i agree with you completely and, and going um going back to the previous conversation about wh- why why the one if, if it's if it can wake up in 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 a in a human form or why doesn't it just why doesn't it just do that all the time and this is this is something um something i wouldn't often say in in, in, in a, on a kind of public platform for for, for fear of being misunderstood um, but the, the the one knows nothing of our suffering. Hmm. It, it, it's only possible to know suffering from our limited, localized perspectives. So it, it, we, as individuals, we, we experience. Suffering and the uh, the impulse to to wake up um, to go beyond our suffering, but uh, to, to to attribute to attribute the struggles we have as individuals to the One, although we are nothing but the One, right. it, it is, is um, it, it at best it's a concession. It's appropriate at some stages in our in our investigation to say God, God loves you, God 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 cares for you, God. Mm -hmm. But but no, God, God knows nothing of us as individuals. The the infinite cannot know the finite. Only something finite can know the finite. So God God, God itself Mm -hmm. only knows its own infinite reality. I'm I'm using the word God for infinite consciousness, or, Mm -hmm. or or. Infinite consciousness can only know itself. So it, it's, I don't know if I'm, if I'm, if I'm being clear, it, infinite consciousness doesn't, it's not that it manifests for a reason. It, in a way, it knows nothing of its manifestation. It, it, it's only possible to know its manifestation and all the attendant struggles. It's only we from our localized points of view that know about manifestation and all the struggles that come with it. Hmm. The, the the infinite knows, the, uh, can only know itself. It cannot know anything other than itself. It only knows its own plenitude, its own fullness, its own infinity.
2: Hmm. But, but Rupert, when you use the word uh, know there, um, I guess you're talking about it's... Um, the the understanding that we were talking about earlier. So it's it's, the totality of understanding is only in the infinite, but it's still experiencing itself through. Well, it's, it's, um, we should have another word for it. It's not knowing.
1: It's, it's the only for the, the absolute knowledge of itself. Consciousness is knowledge of itself. It's the only knowledge there is that doesn't take place in subject object relationship. Mm -hmm. All other knowledge and experience takes place there's a s- finite subject that knows, and there's a finite object that is known. Mm-hmm. But, like, like the experience we're having now, the experience of sounds and thoughts. And, mm-hmm. But the absolute knowledge of itself is just this unique knowing. It's it, it's it's the awareness of being. It's the only experience there is that doesn't take place in subject-object relationship, and and that is our deepest experience. That the awareness of being is our primary experience. R- right now, each of us is. I say Each of us is having the ex- the experience of being. It's not we as people that have the experience of being. It's it's we as consciousness that has the knowledge of it. So that is a un. It's 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 why it's referred to as absolute knowledge because it's not relative to a finite mind. Mm-hmm. It's the only absolute knowledge there is. It's the only unlimited knowledge there is. And so you're you're right, Michael. It, it's
2: I when I say knowing, I, I I'm using the word in a special sense. Mm-hmm i guess it's like it's like the intimate knowing of only i really know what it's like to be to be me in in a, in an intimate way but there's a more universal way of of knowing that's that can be shared among people yes
1: another way of saying it would be that um, consciousness knows itself simply by being itself mm-hmm. just as the sun illuminates itself simply by being itself it doesn't have to separate itself from itself and then shine its light back on itself in order to illuminate itself. It just illuminates itself by being itself. Illuminating is what it is, not what it does. But it's Mm -hmm. like that. Knowing itself is what consciousness is, not what it does.
0: Right. And... Sorry, would you say Rupert that in, in our discussions here we, we really are pushing up against the limits of what we started talking about which is the words we're using themselves are are could only be pointers and, and maybe in this case poor ones at that absolutely and that's why we're we're, we're struggling uh, so, so we're, we're struggling we're, we're really
1: on mm-hmm. on the edge of not just on the edge of, of knowledge but the edge of language well they're, they're closely connected yeah. obviously, at the at the edge of and we're, we're trying to use these clumsy <laughs> symbols, words, which were evolved to describe things like houses and cars and bodies and trees. And we're trying to use them. We're trying to stretch their capacity and, and it it doesn't work very yeah. well. So we're, we're, we're right on the edge. Yes.
2: I think your analogy earlier, Rupert, of getting the joke. So understanding the punchline is appropriate here because if you have to explain the joke to someone, it's just not funny. You know, it's like you either... It's in that moment of understanding that the humor yes, and the joy comes. That's
1: so interesting, Michael, because w- w- when you explain the joke to someone, you engage them in a rational process. Right. Well, that's not what they want. They, we want to bring the mind to an end. Right. So explaining the joke doesn't precipitate this joyous, mo- right. timeless moment of understanding. It just engages you in more mind. So, yes, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's a, to explain a poem or analyze a piece of music or or explain a joke, yes, it, it doesn't deliver.
0: And yet, um, as we were talking about earlier on, you, you were saying we would like to have a non-religious, non-spiritual way of transmitting this in, to to people. And 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 we see right here the 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 problem that we have, which is, if we don't use spiritual or religious language, what language can we use? Y- yes, any language is going to have. I mean, yep. we can point to the limitations of those languages, but but by dropping those languages, we don't drop the problem in some sense. It, it, absolutely. Yes. It, it's, yeah. I,
1: I guess it's trying to find, and this is what I'm, but what I feel that I'm involved in is trying to find a, trying to find a language that is at least as free as possible from, mm-hmm. uh, for, from the limitations of language, particularly the limitations of the spiritual and religious traditions that I, that I came through. It, it's, It's doing our best, knowing that we'll never succeed, but it's just trying to use language in as clean and clear a way as possible. Mm
0: -hmm. I I would agree with that, and I I do wonder, though, that if at their start, many of the religions, when when Jesus spoke, he was probably doing exactly that. I think he was.
1: I think he was just. We then
0: encrusted it later on. Yes, of course,
1: he he was just speaking the language of his day, Mm right. and, and, and you know, when the early Tibetan Buddhist masters were, were, were giving their discourses, they were just speaking just, just the, the language of their day. Of course, now, several hundred years later on the other side of the world, um, that language seems foreign and exotic. And, and therefore, yeah, right. we think that what they were speaking of was something alien, exotic. Not at all. They were just talking about their everyday experience in their everyday language. Well, that, that's, that's right. what we have to find, how to talk about not spiritual experience, but just our real everyday experience. What what is it really that is being experienced, and how can we just talk about that in ordinary everyday language?
0: I, I would agree that that would be useful for our contemporaries. I suspect that in a couple of generations, it, even that would then get encrusted and become, <laughs> of course, a, a um, religion. Yes, and... it, absolutely. You're, I'm sure you're right.
1: right. Yeah, right. it's why um, one of my very first teachers, Doctor Dr. Rose, said. Um, the truth needs to be reformulated by every generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you it, go. It just every generation needs to re- divest it of the old traditional in, encrustation and find new ways, new forms, new methods, new pathways, to, so that it doesn't become um, a religion, a series of beliefs and precepts, and exactly a dogma. A dogma, so that it remains a, a alive and relevant to the to the time and place in which it is spoken.
2: And and it seems as though, whenever simplicity and essential, whenever when things are essential, they're they're really resonant and felt. And whether it's um, spiritual teachings that have a, a simplicity and a timeless to them, or mathematical principles, and you know, Don, you could maybe speak to this that when a mathematical solution is elegant and simple, it somehow resonates as more true or more you know, there's a beauty. To it and something you spoke about uh, in your previous conversation was this uh, amplitude amplitude hedron Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: this structure that I would love to hear Rupert's further take on this because it reminds me so much of Mm -hmm. of um, Indra's net the the concept of Mm -hmm. this jewel of reality that reflects Mm -hmm. that each node of the jewel in this net reflects every other jewel and uh, you know I don't understand the Mathematics behind the amplituhedron, and maybe you could explain it a little more and see what resonances in in this idea that it I, it basically simplifies a lot of complex mathematics about space time. Right? Is that the general idea of it? Right. So it's
0: remarkable that that you know physicists for centuries have taken space and time or their union of space-time as the fundamental reality. Einstein's theory of special relativity and general relativity takes space-time as fundamental and quantum field theory, the fields are defined over space-time. So that's been the foundation for tremendous progress is is space-time. But what's remarkable is that the very theories, the very precise mathematical theories that capture the intuition that space-time is fundamental, those theories themselves tell us the space-time cannot be fundamental. Mm-hmm. They tell us precisely at what scale space-time falls apart at ten to the minus thirty-three centimeters and ten to the minus forty-three seconds. What's called the Planck scale, space-time has no operational meaning. And and so physicists, at first, you know, for, for, to a philosopher that that might sound like nonsense because you you what, what's going on here? You start off with the assumption that space and time are fundamental. You have a mathematical theory that's supposed to implement your thought, the theory comes back and says you shouldn't believe in space-time? Well, now, now wait a minute. What, what, what goes on here? If if, um, if your theory didn't faithfully implement your thoughts about space-time, then why should you believe the mathematical theory when it tells you that space-time isn't fundamental? Well, that's... I mean, it sounds like you're in a, caught in a logical contradiction, but you're not. That's the, That's the way science works, is that we know that our assumptions necessarily have limits. We write down the mathematics to understand the power of our assumptions and those necessary limits. And once we find those limits, we pop, pop out the champagne. We finally understood the limits of those concepts and their mathematical expression. And now it's time to move beyond. So there's no self-refutation in this. Um, that, that's, you know, no logical self-contradiction. But now physicists have, in the last 10 Fifteen years moved on, and, sent, and found some structures like the amplitude That that's for massless particle scattering, and but they've found even other structures for massive particles and all all manner of spin of particles. And and so these are structures not inside space time, or not. You might think, well, they these must be structures that are curled up somehow in you know small dimensions of space time that you can't see. No, no, no. These are entirely outside of space time they're they're divorced from spacetime spacetime is a projection and, and in fact spacetime is a fairly simple structure compared to the the geometry of these other structures um, the, the, they could have billions of dimensions spacetime has four you know th- th- that, that kind of thing so so physics has moved on and uh, my colleagues in the neuroscience the cognitive neuroscience is studying consciousness don't really understand this yet they're they're still Assuming that we're going to boot up consciousness inside space time, mm-hmm. but the, the physicists themselves are looking for entities and structures beyond space time, and and so that's that's where the the action is. And and uh, in some sense, you know, the theory I'm doing with of conscious agents is is an attempt to get a theory beyond space time that will project into space time and give us back space time. And I'll just one last thing, and I'll then I'll. It, it, what we're doing is we're showing that we can project to the structures that the physicists have found, something called decorated permutations, which then project to the amplituhedron and so forth. So we're, we've actually published a paper where we show how to take our conscious agents and project it onto the deepest structures that the physicists are finding beyond space-time so that consciousness gets its place out, entirely outside of space-time. And space-time is merely one interface, one kind of way of looking at the world that consciousness can choose out of a countless number. Yeah.
1: Don, can I ask you something about this? I've been actually meaning to ask you about this uh, since our last conversation. So um, I think you and I uh, agree that one could liken a human mind to a, a virtual reality headset made of thinking mm-hmm. and perceiving. That consciousness, so to speak, which is dimensionless, puts on the VR headset in a human beings case this vr headset is made made out of conceiving and perceiving thinking and perceiving and as a result um through the the vr headset of thinking and perceiving consciousness refracts itself and appears to itself as space and time as as time and space so time correlates directly with thought it's the only way we know time is through thinking and space through sense perception so in a way the, the the one infinite Consciousness appears as space and time when consciousness looks at itself through a, a human mind, a, a, a VR headset of thinking and perceiving. Now, it, it, if it, it's a crude model, but if that that model has some truth in it, then um, what we are seeing out there, as as what we know as space and time, is a reflection of the of the mind through which it is known, the conceiving, perceiving faculties of the mind. So when a human mind, when our human mind then wants to know, well, what is beyond space and time, in order to make that investigation, in order to discover what is beyond space and time, must it not expand the the VR headset. It it cannot, the the, the human mind as we know it simply cannot know what is beyond space and time because space and time is a reflection of the limitations of a human mind. So to know what's beyond space and time really requires going deeply into the mind and transcending
0: the limits of the mind. Yes. so, So the question is, in some sense, we're conceptually and perceptually stuck inside space-time. So how in the world mm-hmm. can we as scientists yeah. somehow get outside of that? And and I do run into that even in giving talks at, at scientific conferences. Um, I gave a talk where I talked about these structures beyond space-time. And I, I won't mention the, the name of the person who – it was a very famous person who's working on consciousness. And he, he, he said he didn't understand this. So are these things – are they like curled up inside space-time? And I said, no, no, they're utterly outside space-time. And, and the look on his face let me know that he had no clue what in the world I could possibly be talking about yes, yes. Uh, when I said that. And so the way we do it is through mathematics. That's the that's the power of mathematics. So space-time is a mathematical structure, right? We have Einstein's field equations for curved space-time or, or um, special relativity gives us a, a, um, a certain kind of space um, L- 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 Lorentz, um, space, L- Lorentz transformation kind of space. So we can simply say, okay, those structures fall apart at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. They don't work. So let's propose new structures that mathematically could have in the case of the amplitude heater, it could have thousands, millions, or billions of dimensions, not just four. And these are utterly outside. So we can write down all this mathematics, and and also the decorated permutations in our theory of conscious agents. Right, we can write down the mathematical models of Markovian dynamics of conscious agents. There could be trillions of them. You know, however many you want. The, the dimensions of the thing could be, you know, a Google dimensions. It's it's it, it, it. We're we're free to go there, and then we can just simply with mathematics say now all that. in, in Incredible complexity gets projected into this four-dimensional simple little structure, and that has such a grip on our imagination. But but you, the way you l- get that thing to lose its grip, is by using mathematics. The mathematics is the tool that we use to actually not just speculate that there could be something beyond space-time, but to actually go there precisely and make precise models that we can then project into space time where we can make our measurements, right? We can only make measurements where we can observe them, which is inside space time. So we, we do need to project all these higher dimensional things into space time to test them. Um, but that, that's, that's how we do it. Um, and, and it, and it's working quite well when you let go of space time, um, the mathematics gets simpler in a way. So when you try to compute, like when, uh physicists, experimental particle physicists, what they call high energy physics, when they um, smash particles together, like you might have two gluons smashing into each other and four gluons go spraying out or, or whatever. It could be a photon that breaks into a quark-anti-quark pair. And then, and these are called scattering events. And you can compute the probability of these various scattering events. And when you do it inside space-time, um, because space-time is in some sense the wrong framework – the mathematics is really, really nasty. The two gluons in, four gluons out kind of thing. Hundreds of pages of algebra for one interaction. But when you let go of space-time and you do it like with the um, two or three terms you can compute by hand, and you see new symmetries that are true of the data that you can't see inside space-time. So, so space-time has uh, actually you know, I think the next generation is not going to have the problem we have of what do you mean beyond space-time? Because this generation that is raised in virtual reality, playing virtual reality and taking a headset off, it's going to be a no-brainer to, well, so when I take that headset off, what about this? Could this be a headset too? Sure, why not? Why, why isn't this a headset? Okay, so what's beyond the headset? And all of a sudden, it's just not that hard to think outside of that, but, but to think precisely you need the mathematics. And to actually make progress, there's no way to do it without the mathematics. And by the way, this is where I think, I mean, there could be a real dialogue that's profitable between science and spirituality. Both are talking about aspects of consciousness beyond space-time. And so I think there could be a real good dialogue. Again, humbly understanding that no matter what we write down is not, not it right? And yet also understanding, as we talked about earlier, there is some reward for being precise. There is some reward, even though you know, maybe the reward is that you know the limits of what you're saying, so you can't be dogmatic. And that, that's a big reward. It, it's, it, it really blocks dogmatism because your, your own theories, if they're good enough, will tell you, this is where I stop. Whereas just paper and pencil word theories typically don't do that. Or not so clearly. They don't say ten to the minus thirty-three centimeters, and I stop. <laughs> they're, they're not that kind of precise. Right? Does that sort of answer the question? Rupert, so, sorry, Don, What did you say? Does that sort of answer your question? Yeah, yeah.
1: Very much so. Yes, yes, yes. Very much so. Um, something that comes to mind when you were when you were talking is that um, that art is another channel uh, through which that which lies outside space-time and, and, and that, that hasn't gone all the way from space-time all the way back to the one but somehow lies in the field between the two. That, that, that a, a, a great artist is one who whose mind is sufficiently open mm-hmm. to be in touch with that realm it also has the skill to bring the the knowledge of that realm into our four dimensional world. You, you know, you t- and, and I'm, talk- I'm talking about re- the, really the great artists, Beethoven. You listen to one of Beethoven's symphonies, mm. you, you, you 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 really feel that it's it's kind of cosmic knowledge that is being laid out in front. Well, did, that wasn't just fantasy. It, it's like it's like something is being communicated. That 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 that's like one of these two hundred page equations. <laughs> yes. uh, but but it, 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 uh, something that knowledge that comes from outside this very small world of time and space that we know through our finite minds, and yet is being translated into a form that that we can apprehend mm-hmm. in, in in this with with our mind. So it, it um. When when you when you talk about these two hundred pages uh, of equations, I, I I I pictured a Beethoven score, and mm-hmm. uh, this and I I think I think that's why I, I've always felt that that art was a kind of art at its highest was a kind of sacred activity. Its its it, its purpose is to bring knowledge that's outside most people's mind into to to make it um, accessible digestible for. For a mortal mind, and in a way, you're saying the same—the same thing of mathematics, that it's a kind of yes. art form, who's, 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 which is capable of penetrating beyond the limited structures of our mind, and yet bringing that knowledge back
0: into our minds, formulating it for our minds. Yeah, I think it, I think that's a very good analogy, uh, and, and there's something. Almost inevitable about a Beethoven symphony. That note had to be there. You, you, you could not change that note. Yes. It, it, yes. It, and and the same thing is true of the mathematics. For 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 this theory. Yes. You, if, if that two turns into a two point five or a three, this theory doesn't work. I mean, that that you need you need a two there, not a three.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: And yes. It's sort of like the Beethoven. You need that note. You you can't you, you don't mess with that note. Yeah. Um, it seems inevitable and. Sometimes the composers themselves sometimes talk as though they went after it and went after it until they knew that they would heard the right thing, that they that, that, that yes. there was a right answer here, and and they had to get that right answer. No, no, I did this and it wasn't right, and and then you get it right. It's very much like in mathematics, it's either right or wrong. Yes. Yes but i can't go deeper than that because i that, that's not my area but but i think there's something interesting there i don't know if anybody can go deeper on that that would be very interesting
2: yeah i think one of the things that uh, points to that being true of of great art is that it's timelessness the fact that you know people for hundreds of years have heard beethoven and it's resonated for them it wasn't just the people of beethoven's time that got it it's it's generation after generation and uh, so that, I think that's one of these pointers that it's touching into something deeper that's less about space-time, to use the language of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I should j- just,
0: so th- 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 to bring up the point, but I, I don't want to push on it too hard. For my, my colleagues in, in um, cognitive neuroscience, they would, they would say, well, Don, why didn't you mention... That um, you know the reason why we like Beethoven and these other things is because of the, the structure of, of, of our brains and and the, the way we've evolved and, and so forth. And there there is that kind of story that you can tell as well. You know that in some sense, um, a, a great piece of music is is you could talk about it from an evolutionary point of view and say that it's just tapping into. So so I don't want to to dismiss that that's another equally reasonable way to to go with this. But there might be a deeper point of view in which both are are the same thing, right? um, Even evolution by natural selection itself is, I mean, it's a wonderful theory and it it works well inside space-time. But I think it is an artifact of the limits of space-time. That, that that we get the theory of evolution by natural selection. So that's why it's well well suited to space time because right. it shares the limits of space time, namely that there is this this arrow of time, whereas beyond space time there is no need for this arrow of time. So so I, I I just want to acknowledge that you know evolution by natural selection is a wonderful tool to discuss this stuff inside space time, but not beyond space time. Yes. And, and we're trying to do both. Yes. Yes. Yes.
2: In your last conversation, you sort of talked about the uh, the personal impacts of like what happens if people awaken to this reality that consciousness is first, and how that could be transformative for people in the way that they treat each other, and how nations and governments and things like that. And my question is more about um, what, Rupert will know this term, I don't know if Don, you know this term, spiritual bypassing. So this idea that... Uh, Rupert, you can probably explain it much better than I. But basically, that sometimes people who are on a spiritual path will use these ultimate truths as a way to sort of bypass the um, internal and interpersonal difficulties that they find. They say, "Oh, it doesn't matter that you know uh, I hate my job or something like that because you know we're all one and there's just one consciousness." Or you know, people will use it sometimes as, a, as, an, as an excuse um, to kind of. Yeah, basically bypass. Um, so I'm just curious in this model if if you if you two feel wary about that at all that that maybe some people aren't ready to awaken to this to this uh, to this knowledge that space time is an illusion and all that we're experiencing is is awareness knowing itself. Uh, Don, do you want to respond or shall I? Shall I start? Well, I'll, I'll let you start. Uh, okay. yeah. Yeah.
1: Um yeah, just about uh, spiritual bypassing. To put it in the context of our earlier conversation on about um, transcending. Um, so, obviously, at the deepest, the deepest level, we're not our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, our relationships, our bodily functions, and so on. We we are that which is aware of them and so the, the 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 early stages of this investigation in many spiritual traditions starts with the uh, way of negation as, as you said earlier don a neti neti approach I, i'm not this i'm not this i'm not this which okay. it, if if one's spiritual path stops there then that could be used as an excuse for not um attending to the more relative levels of one's experience not not, not. It needn't have any impact on one's thoughts or feelings, let alone one's actions and relationships. Because after all, we're not those things. So why bother about them? That, but that would be a. Whilst in theory it's a possibility, I and occasionally you hear of, um, actually, usually it's it's teachers, not students, that that, that use this understanding to justify. Um, obnoxious behavior it's it it very rarely happens in my experience of of speaking to people it it, it's very rare and also I think this the the path of transcendence uh, where we trace our way back through the layers of experience and we recognize our fundamental nature of being or being aware it's I think nowadays on the contemporary spiritual scene it's recognized that that is just half the process. The other half of the process is when we turn around again and face our thoughts and feelings, our actions and relationships, and, and realign them with our new understanding of ourself. And and I, I certainly, in, in all my years of, of um, speaking and writing about these matters, nearly 15 years, I, I can only think of two or three examples where th- this uh, recognition of one's Essential nature has been used as an, as an excuse to, to um, avoid having to, to face and deal with these aspects in oneself. So uh, um, I, don't, I don't think it's a danger.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, however, what I have noticed, what is more common, is that people are, are afraid, as you mentioned, Michael, people are afraid of the, the, the Vedantic approach, the neti-neti approach, uh, the via negativa, the way of negation. They're, they're afraid that that somehow bypasses dealing with the very real nitty-gritty aspects of one's life, one's trauma, um, uh, one's sorrow. One's fear. And because they're so afraid of bypassing that material, they never get further than that material. They think, oh, I'm so keen not to avoid my trauma. I'm so keen not to avoid my dysfunctional relationships and everything that I'm not even going to take that journey all the way back to my true nature because they think that that avoidance is implicit in that exploration. And I actually Mm. think that that is much more dangerous. I, I see far more people who don't take the journey all the way back to themselves because they're so keen on exploring their trauma than the relatively few people who do take the journey all the way back to themselves and then use that as an excuse for not clearing up their act.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, on that, Rupert, um, in, I guess there's a couple ways you could talk about clearing up your trauma. One would be like psychoanalysis, which is more mind kind of stuff, versus facing your feelings without thought, just, just being with them. And so were you thinking about the more psychoanalysis kind of thing, or were you thinking about the the other?
1: I I think there's, there's, I think both are valid. Mm -hmm. I think that there's the turning around and facing one's feelings, um, from the perspective of just from the perspective of, of awareness, facing them without agenda. Um, okay. I sometimes refer to it as, as kissing the toad, turning around, facing your feelings, embracing them, bringing them close, because uh, with no resistance to them. Um, exactly. In, in the tantric approach, they call it devouring your emotions, bringing them so close that there is no longer any resistance to them. And of course, there, in the absence of resistance to your sorrow, that that's where you find the peace and happiness that you previously sought by avoiding it. So, I think there is a, a, a very it, that, that is a very valid practice and one, one that I encourage a lot. I do think there's also a, a, a place for the psychoanalytical or psychoth- uh, psychotherapeutic approach, um, particularly if there's some particular event in, in one's life that, w- that that has has triggered a very deep trauma that, that one is really um, focused on that has become a real not. Mm-hmm. And that right. sometimes it is valid. To go into that story, to explore it, to unpack it, uh, I think it has to be done from the perspective of of uh, 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 this recognition, this understanding of our true nature. But I do think there's also a place for it um, in the context of this understanding. If 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 the therapeutic or th- psychoanalytic approach is undertaken without this understanding of our essential nature, then I think it's fairly limited. Uh, Still of benefit, uh, undoubtedly, it's still of benefit. But in the context of what we're talking about, the recognition of our true nature, I really think that that those methods have to be used in conjunction with the deeper investigation into
0: our essential nature. I, I I agree with that wholeheartedly, and, and I'll just I guess the last thing I'll, I'll just say is, is about science um, and scientists in this regard, and and that is that my my reading right now is that um, the vast majority of scientists are still physicalists, and they're diehard physicalists, and um, consciousness, um, if it's anything, it's a product of the brain, but it may not be anything; it may just be an illusion. Um, but but it, it, there's going to have to be a, a a big sea change before scientists are actually on mass going to be helping us to pursue theories of consciousness beyond space time and, and I hope that they do because once their genius is turned to this yeah. we won't be able to keep up I mean this it's it's, yeah. it's, it's so my, my goal is to try to get some killer app <laughs> of mathematical consciousness beyond space-time. Get that killer app um, that all of a sudden gets much brighter minds than mine in, in science to say, oh, okay, okay, we can run with this now. I, 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 now I see where this is going. So that's, that's what I'm up to. I, I can send you guys, a, we have a proposal for for just that kind of thing, uh, uh, showing how we can boot up um, from the theory of conscious agents to actually get a computational experiment which gives us the exact momentum distributions of quark and gluon um, dynamics inside of a proton. And if we can do that kind of thing well with a theory of consciousness, then I'm hoping that but that will be the kind of killer app that will get really get the genius of science unlocked on this, and 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 then hang on because it's going to be a, a really fun ride. Once science goes into this, and and the tools of science are put into this, science and spirituality are just going to take off. Mm-hmm. So it, I just want to it, you know, hope, hopefully, help ignite that flame and then watch the rocket take off because I think we're, we're we have the tools. We just have to you know scientists just have to realize it's really over for space-time. It really is over for space-time. And they really have to go in with both feet. And, and they may not like consciousness, but, but it, it's something beyond space-time. And if there are dynamical entities beyond space-time, it's still not comfortable, no matter whether you call it consciousness or not. It's not something inside space-time. So you're going to have to go outside your comfort zone to, to mm-hmm. deal with this. Stuff. So one scientists do that, then I, I i just i can't wait for the fireworks it's going to be a lot of fun
1: <laughs> well that's a marvelous prospect
2: yes yeah and i along with everyone else am uh, eagerly awaiting this explosion maybe after uh, the ai thing slows down maybe all of these minds will be turned towards this discovery of the primacy of consciousness and the dialogue between science and, spirituality and I feel like you two will be at the forefront of that when that revolution finally comes. So um, yeah, I want to thank you both for your time and the depth of our conversation today. It was a real honor to be in presence with both of you and, and with the SAND community once again. Well, thank
1: you, Michael. I, I have to say I
2: miss our uh, SAND conferences.
1: And yes. I always used to consider the real SAND conference place in the dining room, the breakfasts, and the spontaneous conversations in the corridors, and our formal talks were just the bits in between. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've, I completely understand why, of course. Uh, sand is not uh, has changed; it's moved on, and it, it, it's beautiful and appropriate and everything. But I miss I
0: miss those days. They were they were very special. Me, me too. I I missed them. It was a lot of fun and this conversation was was great fun. Thank you. both. it was. Yes. I learned
2: a you. lot so. Yes, thank, thank you. you. To be thank continued. <laughs> Honor in this region. Thank you Okay. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events and offerings through our website scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of sand content available exclusively to sand members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.